Hi guys, I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And welcome to another episode of the Tap on the Wrist podcast. Yay! It's December. It is the holiday season. It is. We're sitting in Laura's apartment. She has her Christmas tree up with the lights on right now. She got a second mini Christmas tree. <laughs> well, I had to because, so my, I own a ton of Christmas ornaments but then last year I made my Christmas tree a New York City themed Christmas tree, which I love very much. But there are some of my favorite ornaments not on that tree because they're not New York City themed. So I got a second so mini tree. you needed a second tree. Obviously the answer was to put up a second tree with my favorite <laughs> ornaments. So that's going to happen this week. It's, it's, a little, it's a little Charlie Brown tree though. It is. It is. I mean, it's from Dollar Tree, right? Yeah. So... <laughs> and it's only three feet, but it's going to be adorable once I zhuzh it up. I'm sure it will be. You also got this cool advent calendar here. Um, yes. If any of you are lucky enough to live near Trader Joe's, run, don't walk. <laughs> because Trader Joe's has the advent of the cocktail hour and is a chocolate truffle 25-day advent calendar full of boozy truffles which sounds delicious so they've got liqueur de cafe mm -hmm. honey caramel Ooh. I, don't, I don't know what the alcohol is in that but, but it sounds delicious they got a peach bellini an eggnog a coffee martini and pink champagne so it is already december 5th so you got five chocolates to eat yeah you want one yeah oh <laughs> december 1st I can do December 1st? Yeah. Is that just this? Oh, here we go. I didn't see that there were numbers on there. Let's see what we got. It's liquor de cafe. It's coffee. Liqueur. Yeah, definitely that one. Let's see how it tastes. They're real tiny. They're so cute. Look at it. Well, that's because you're going to eat 25 of them. <laughs> it's very tasty. Is it coffee liqueur? Okay, I'm going to open December 2nd. Oh, no. Ooh, it's another chocolatey one. What if, like, the whole row is cafe? It's just the, the first week. Yeah, it's the same one, isn't it? This might be the... Oh, there's a coffee martini and a liqueur de cafe. Yeah, you're the liqueur de cafe. I have a coffee martini. It tastes like alcohol. <laughs> it did have an alcoholic taste. Mine did, too. It is pretty good, though. Highly recommend. Recommended. It was very tasty. And it's a cute, it like, it's 20, 20s-esque yeah. It's design. like Art Deco kind of mm -hmm. design. Very and, classy. Um, it's only $3.99. Worth it. Yeah. So, fun gift for yourself this holiday season. <laughs> and speaking of the holiday season... Just a heads up that we are going to take a couple weeks off during the holiday times to spend time with our friends, family, get into ourselves. the spirit, ourselves, <laughs> cats, you know, what whoever we, we choose to spend our time with. Yeah. So not this week, but next week will be our last episode before our mini break. Uh, and I think we're taking about two weeks yeah. and then we'll be back in the new year. Yeah, we're taking the week of Christmas and the week between Christmas yeah. and New Year's off. But this week, we have some stories to tell. We do have some stories to tell. We are doing true crime again. Uh, we span, we spun, I think it's only been a week in between our two true crime spins. And like up until now, we hadn't really had repeats. Right. But it's true crime again. So, we are excited um, to tell you some true crime stories this week. We will be putting up pictures, uh, maybe of my Christmas tree. Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe of the advent calendar, but definitely about our two stories this week. So, if you're not following us on social media, make sure you're checking us out on Twitter and Instagram. We are at a tap on the wrist. Ah. <laughs> and sorry, Laura's cat just... <laughs> Bad to me. The, everyone's going to think my cat is evil. <laughs> this is the second time. I know. 
Um, she just gets real excited when she sits <laughs> on Vanessa's lap. <laughs> if you want to share your cat pictures with us, you can send them to tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. Oh, goodness. But uh, here's our true crime stories. So the story I found today is actually from the true crime dust calendar that Laura gifted me last Christmas. Ooh. Yes, I was going through and it was actually around Halloween and I saved it because our Halloween episodes obviously are ghost focused and then I forgot to do it for our last true crime pick and I finally got it. Nice. It is Halloween themed. Uh, but, you know, it's whatever. Yeah. It's true crimes year-round. This story is the murder of Joel Loveline. And uh, there's a great Dateline episode about it, actually. I'll, I'll get to it at the end. But the murder takes place on October 27th of 2007. 38-year-old Joel Loveline was celebrating Halloween with his fiance Heather Eastling at the Broken Drum Bar and Grill in Grand Forks, North Dakota. He was dressed as a hockey fan, wearing a bright green jersey uh, that was for his favorite team. It was from the University of North Dakota. During the evening of drinking, playing blackjack, and smoking cigars, Joel received a call and stepped outside to take it because the bar was so loud. After his call, Joel did return into the bar to tell his fiance Heather that he was going back out to check on a person who'd been left behind by a party bus. Now the party bus he mentioned had been chartered by a group of about 40 to 50 20 somethings for a Halloween bar crawl through Grand Forks. And since this is an alcohol podcast, just a quick aside that according to the article I read, North Dakota has more bars per capita than any other state in the nation. What? Isn't that crazy? Why? Well, I mean, I guess there's probably not a whole lot else to do. <laughs> no I offense. was like, North Dakota? So random. That is wild. Yeah. Um, so these people had many options to choose from on this pub crawl. In the bus, some of the revelers included a cowboy, a hunter, a lion, a construction worker, and a gangster. As costumes. As costumes. <laughs> no, there was a live lion on the party bus. It was intense. <laughs> and not only had the group been bar hopping all night, but as expected, they'd also been drinking on the bus, as you do. I mean, it's a party bus. It's a party bus. They apparently had an estimated 325 jello shots. On the bus, which is that's a lot of a lot I of mean, jello shots. Three hundred and twenty-five jello shots by forty people. That's that's like eight jello shots a person. Yeah, that seems like an unnecessary amount of jello shots, especially when you're bar hopping in between. Yeah. So around the time of Joel's call, which Heather says was at eleven thirty p.m., the party bus was supposed to be leaving for its next destination. And as I said, Joel claimed that someone had been left behind, presumably intoxicated and in need of help, and he went to check on the person. In an article I read, Heather recalled that he told her, hey, somebody got left by the bus. I'm going to check on him. She then said that he kissed her and went outside. Unfortunately, this would be the last time that Heather saw Joel alive because just moments later, he was laying dead outside the bar having been beaten so severely that the bones in his cheek had been broken and he had choked to death on his own blood. Which is horrible. But, like, that quickly and no one saw it? It was very quick, yes. And no, nobody saw it. Um, Another bar patron found him after it had happened uh, and ran inside the bar yelling, Call 911. Heather and I presume some others ran outside and she found Joel unresponsive on the pavement, covered in blood from what appeared to be a head injury. She said of the night, quote, Joel was lying there with blood all over the cement near his head in the parking lot. We couldn't get a response out of him. 
And even though he was rushed to the hospital, there was unfortunately nothing that could be done for him. Again, he had already choked to death on his, on his blood. The police did immediately start investigating uh, that same night, but there were a couple of unfortunate factors at play. So first, the party bus was, of course, gone at this point, which means that a large pool of suspects, you know, 40 to 50 people and, and witnesses, were no longer at the bar. Secondly, it was a Saturday before Halloween, which meant that most, if not all, of the witnesses and suspects were in costume. So people were wearing face paint, paint and hats and masks and just weren't as easy to identify as people normally would be. And lastly, there was a lot of alcohol involved. Uh, most of the witnesses were intoxicated. The suspects were intoxicated. So it was hard to get a clear picture of what had happened that night. There were, however, still about 80 people at the bar when the police got there and they were able to gather enough information to go after some people. Uh, and they did find one piece of evidence, which was a bloodstained piece of torn costume. It was yellow and looked like a foot or a paw. And uh, it did have, again, some blood splatter on it. So from the witnesses at the bar, police were given some costume descriptions of people who had been seen with or near Joel. This included the clown, the cowboy, a gangster, and a construction worker. Armed with these costume descriptions, the police went out in search of the party bus and these specific costumes. The first bus suspect they found was the clown. And I don't think I mentioned there is some surveillance footage from like inside the bar. Um, unfortunately not from outside the bar because it would have made the case a lot easier, but I think they were able to kind of like identify what people looked like from some of the tapes. So they found the clown and when they found him, he was crying and his hands were shaking, which of course made them suspicious. They were like, what, what, what traumatized you, sir? Uh, he said that it was with, because of a fight with his girlfriend uh, and according to police reports, he at some point said, I guess things got out of hand tonight. And police were like, what? What do you mean they got out of hand? But at this point, he kind of started to shut down and he asked for a lawyer. The next person they found was the cowboy, who was apparently the person who had organized the party bus. And he also acted suspiciously because he gave the police a false name and a false birth date. And he became physically aggressive with them, which I'm sure is partially because he was drunk at this point. And though he was restrained with handcuffs, he wasn't actually arrested. And another odd thing he did was that when the police mentioned that someone had died, he asked if the victim was wearing a green shirt with the initials UND on it. So, like, why did he assume it was that person? That's suspicious. Yes. <laughs> Uh, according to the detective's report, he not only admitted to seeing a large guy wearing a UND jersey in the parking lot, but also said that the man had blood on his face, but no significant, significant injuries. And I will note that during the subsequent trial, he denied ever making these comments and also the clown denied that he cried. So... Just weird shit. Just kind of weird. Just like weird occurrences and then there's a lot of drinking involved. So when they sobered up, they probably couldn't remember yeah. what they had done and or what they had then said to police. Right. Exactly. Which is why they were then brought in the next day for further questioning by the police when they were sober and more coherent. And it was there that they were able to kind of give a better timeline. The police learned that there were two passengers on the party bus who had gotten into a fight outside of the broken drum before it departed. Uh, and those two were the hunter and the lion, which is a little bit ironic. But it was like a hunter in an animal costume. Um, but it, those were the people that were fighting. And according to the police reports, it was noted that the lion grabbed a member of their group by the collar and pulled him to the ground the member being the hunter. And this was all without provocation. Uh, they noted that the lion costume was crude and it was fashioned out of a yellow hoodie. 
And guess who didn't get on the bus because they were told they couldn't? The lion. Now, if you remember, Joel said he was helping someone who didn't get on a party bus. So we assume that was the lion. And didn't you say there was a a paw like Yes, club. there was a little paw. I mean, I don't know many hunters, but pretty sure they don't have paws. <laughs> yeah, pretty sure cowboys and clowns also don't have paws. Like, yeah. the only costume that was mentioned that fits that bill. Lion. And in addition... I think the lion's lion. <laughs> oh! Sorry. <laughs> So not only was he not told not to get on the bus, but witnesses on the bus claimed that as it was pulling away, they saw him speaking to a guy in a green hockey jersey, a.k.a. Joel. Now, at this point, the other suspects had been cleared because they were all said to have been on the party bus with everyone else. The line was the only one left behind. There were also two other men who had been dressed as a gangster and a construction worker who claimed that before they got on the bus, they had approached the lion, uh, but Joel had kind of, like, come up and, like, tried to, like, help ease the tension. Uh, They insisted that the conversation didn't get heated and that they had even kind of, like, joked around about, like, supporting different hockey teams and that it was totally fine and they just got back on the bus. No, No big. So, because all these other people had been cleared, the police began to focus on the man in the yellow hoodie, or the lion. But before they could get to him, the lion actually made his own way to the police station. The lion was a man named Travis Stay, and his is the only name I'll say because in the articles I read, everyone was was referred to by their costume. Um, So I assume that was intentional, like they didn't want to be named, but Travis Day is named. And he went to the police station because he had heard that they had been looking for a man in a yellow hoodie who had been at the Broken Drum on Saturday, and he knew he fit the bill. Travis was 23 and a nursing student, and he explained to the cops that a man in a hunter costume had punched him in the face in the parking lot, which is a little different than what everyone else had said, saying that he had kind of started the fight. And while in questioning, police noticed that he had bruises on his face and he had cuts on his hand. Also suspicious was that when they asked for his costume, Travis told them that he had thrown it away because it was, quote, full of blood. He did, however, maintain that he was innocent and so allowed the police to recover the costume from the trash at his apartment building. Uh, And he also turned over his shoes and I believe his pants without any kind of search warrant being issued. He was just like, here you go. Have him. I'm innocent. Right. He did note, however, that he had had 10 drinks that night and that he was so intoxicated that he couldn't remember what happened between being punched and then getting in the cab later that night to get home. He also never remembered talking to Joel. And despite him being blackout drunk, he ins- his instinct told him that he was innocent. He said, I just knew I didn't have anything to do with it. And though the loss of memory seems pretty convenient, Travis claims that it was something that had happened to him like several times before while drinking. Um, He said that the people he was with, his friends, said that his personality didn't change during these blackouts and that he was described as happy-go-lucky when drunk. But despite Travis having strong feelings that he did not beat Joel to death, uh, Not only had he been seen fighting with the hunter, but another man came forward and claimed that on his way home, which was sometime after Joel's murder, Travis had started to follow him and eventually attempted to punch him in the face without provocation again. So there are like multiple accounts of Travis being kind of violent that night while he was drunk. And he just doesn't remember any of it? And he doesn't remember any of it. That's terrifying. Yeah. And apparently this happened several times. Like... I feel like I would be terrified if that happened to me once, that I, like, didn't remember an entire night. Like, I'd stop drinking. Let alone, like, doing it over and over. But, you know, to each their own. Uh, actually, please don't get blackout drunk. Because you never know what you'll do. Yeah. 
And then the truly damning evidence came through. So some of the blood that was on Travis's hoodie and on his shoes matched Joel. Mm. Not good. Uh, again, as we mentioned, the costume, the lion paw was found that also had Joel's blood on it. So not looking good. It's not looking good for the lion lion. Nope. Uh, so with evidence mounting, Travis was arrested and charged with murder. He was offered a deal of less than 10 years in prison if he pled guilty to manslaughter, but he turned that down immediately with no hesitation because he maintained that he was innocent. During the trial, all of this evidence that I've just mentioned was presented. There were also multiple witnesses that confirmed seeing Joel and Travis speaking. And as an article I read from NBC News wrote, Quote, prosecutors painted Stay as the bruised and angry loser of a fistfight who attacked the Good Samaritan who'd come to his aid. However, despite prosecution thinking this was like a slam shut case, slam dunk case, Jur saw holes in it. The defense pointed out that Joel was six foot three and 240 pounds, and Travis was 80 pounds lighter and six inches shorter meaning that it would have been difficult for Travis to attack Joel without Joel being able to defend himself. The prosecution did counter that by saying it was possible because Joel was also drunk, so, like, he wasn't at his best or, like, most aware. Right. Um, And then, despite the prosecution having a blood splatter analysis come in and say that the blood on Travis could have only gotten on Joel, like, while... I mean, sorry, could have only gotten on Travis while Joel was on the ground being beaten, meaning like it splattered up on him while he was beating. The defense brought in a different blood splatter analyst who like said that it could have happened in many ways. Like he could have been helping Joel, you know, after he had been beaten up. He could have like, Joel could have coughed up blood onto Travis. Okay. So that was another hole. Then there was also an ER doctor who said that the cuts the police had noticed on Travis's hands weren't severe enough to have come from beating a man to death. Also, in regards to Travis trying to attack another man later, like trying to show like that aggression, he said, quote, he's drunk, he's inept, he's had two targets to swing at and missed them both and fell down. So basically he was saying that instead of it being evidence against Travis, it showed that he wasn't capable of beating somebody up. Like he had, he, he couldn't even hit the two these two people. Right. He was too drunk to like actually land a punch. Right. And they of the defense also of course tried to pass suspicion off on other people. They reminded jurors that the clown had been crying, uh, that the cowboy had been violent with police, and that the police had described a lot of the party goers as belligerent and confrontational. Travis himself believed that the clown, cowboy, and gangster had beat up both him and Joel, even though he said he couldn't remember. I don't know. But that was their, that was their story. It was like somebody from the party bus or multiple people from the party bus had beat up both Travis and Joel. And honestly, Joel just got the worse of it. Um, Travis did have, like, a black eye and, again, like, the scratches, but nothing quite as severe. Yeah. However, the thing that created the most doubt in the mind of the juries was the timeline of the events. So, according to the footage from the security camera in the bar, three and a half minutes after Joel had left to go help this person, the clown was seen exiting the bar. And... Everyone on the party bus, party bus agreed that the clown was on the bus when they left, which means that despite what the prosecution had said, the party bus was still there when Joel was beat to death for at least three and a half minutes while the clown was still in the bar. Right. So they they were saying basically saying he. They weren't alone. Anyone could have walked into the parking lot that was on the party bus. It hadn't left yet. Um, It was completely plausible. One of the detectives on the case later admitted that the police were investigating under the presumption that the party bus had left before Joel was beaten, 
and said that he would have sought out the names of the cowboy's friends if he had known that the bus left after Joel was assaulted. So, right. Well, because it's a lot more witnesses. Yeah. Potential witnesses. Right. Um, the trial lasted for nine days, and after five hours, the jury decided to acquit Travis Day. They felt that the men from the party bus were not seriously investigated. No one else's clothes had been tested for blood or DNA. Uh, and the timeline just wasn't consistent with the prosecution's argument. And so they weren't saying that Travis didn't do it, but there wasn't enough evidence to prove that he did. Right. It has to be, like, without a doubt. Right. And they there wasn't that. Right. Uh, unfortunately, no other suspect was ever named. And though Joel's murder is technically unsolved, the Grand Forks Police Department thinks that it was and that the case is closed even though no one was convicted so much so that prosecutors have allowed evidence to be destroyed what yeah which seems insane because sure they they could be convinced that travis did it but it's not solved and no one thinks the cowboy or the clown or Nope, and they all still, they obviously maintain their innocence and say that they weren't involved. Right. Obviously. Uh, Detective Mike Scholes, who worked a case, still feels the evidence points to Travis Day. He said to NBC News, quote, there's not one stitch of physical evidence to suggest anybody else was involved. Unfortunately, they didn't really look for any other physical evidence, to be fair. Uh, And of course, Joel's fiance, Heather, was devastated at the outcome of the trial and was quoted as saying, if he's really not guilty, then who is? Somebody knows something. But no one's investigating it because right, police think they got their guy. Travis did issue an apology to Joel's family. Uh, though he still says that he didn't kill Joel, he apologized for drinking too much and for, quote, being part of the equation that night. He also said that Joel was his only friend in the parking lot that night. Uh, Travis went on to study law, inspired to change his profession from nursing by his own experience. And at the time that the article I read was written, which was in 2013, uh, he was clerking for one of the defense attorneys who had won his freedom for him. Uh, And yeah, I guess he went on to become a lawyer. Sadly, to this day, there are still no definitive answers on who killed Joel Lovelane. And uh, I don't know if we ever will have those answers because... Doesn't the evidence like anyone's gone. looking for him yeah. either. Yeah. So my sources were first and foremost the article from NBC News where I got the bulk of my information. It was called Halloween Murder Mystery, Who Kills the Man in the Hockey Costume by Tracy Jarrett. I also read uh, someone's blog. It's truenoirstories.wordpress.com. Uh, they had an article called The Halloween Murder of Joel Loveline. And... Of course, a shout-out to the true crime calendar that Laura got me. <laughs> it is called A Year of True Crime Page-A-Day Calendar, and you can get it for 2022. It's already out. I checked. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do want to say I did watch a Dateline episode. A lot of the information was the same as the NBC News article, so it wasn't really a source, but you should definitely check it out because there were – a lot of first-hand interviews. Heather, the fiance, is interviewed. A lot of the cops working the case were interviewed. Travis actually is interviewed in as well, uh, and some of the jurors. So definitely check it out if you're interested in hearing more about the case. There's also a Reddit form if you're into solving unsolved murders. There you go. There you go. So the story I chose this week is true crime, but it is not murder. Okay. Um, I felt true crimes. You haven't done murder. I know. Because I knew <laughs> you would. Uh, I felt like this story is appropriate because the holidays have kind of started, and a lot of people are visiting with their families and seeing old friends, and this can be a little bit of like a precautionary tale. But in December of two thousand eight, the Wilson family and their last name has been changed was home celebrating the beginning of their Christmas break. The younger kids had a few weeks off from school. The older children were back home for the holidays. And there was lots of joy in the air. 
And so the Wilsons decided to have a little family party get together. Okay. And one of the younger daughters, who we're going to call Jane, but that is not her name. The entire family's name has been kept hidden for reasons we will get to. Okay. Uh, Jane is about 17 years old. And she asks her parents if she can invite a couple of friends over for the party, and they agree. So she calls up uh, two of her friends, Shelby and Alyssa, invites them over to hang out. She says that both of her older sisters are home for the holidays, and that her family is having a party, and that everyone is drinking, uh, including her, and that they can come and hang out. So, like, kind of weird, but, I mean, I guess to each family their own. Yeah. (laughs) But, whatever. So, Shelby, um, and that is a real name, is also 17. She is an athlete, an honor student, likes to go shopping, typical teenager. She already had plans that night to actually go to Alyssa's and spend the night. Okay. And so... She was like, well, I'll just pick up Alyssa and we'll go to the Wilson's house and party with them instead of a slumber party at Alyssa's house. What happens is Alyssa or Shelby is kept on a very tight leash by her family and she actually doesn't have her own car. So she has to beg her older sister to get permission to borrow her VW VW Beetle. Um, and she even like offered to take it and wash it and have it detailed the next day. Okay. So her sister agrees. Uh, Shelby packs her bag. She goes to Alyssa's, picks her up. It's noted that they stop and get tacos for dinner. And then they help, they head over to the Wilson's house. Now, when they get to the Wilson's, it's fairly late, like already after midnight. So I'm like, what time was she going to spend the night at her friend's house if right. she wasn't there already? Whatever. I The timeline is very strange. But they get to the Wilson shortly after midnight, and it's very clear that all the members of the Wilson family have been drinking, including Jane, which she didn't normally drink with, like, her friends and party, but she was, like, drinking that night with her family. family. I know. I don't. Again. <laughs> Not my family. Um, So, Shelby, just like most teenagers, you know, did use her phone. Social media wasn't as popular. There was social media, but it is mainly, like, some text messages um, that are used throughout the rest of this story to kind of build the timeline of what happened. Mm -hmm. um, And some pictures as well. So, at one point, Shelby texts a friend who asks what she's up to, and she wrote, uh, I'm at Jane's house. It's just family. It's nice, though. You know, there's nothing like a Wilson party. Smiley face. Um, She also, at one point, snapped a picture in front of a full bar of alcohol, so you can see her in, like, the reflection of a mirror. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... There's, like, a couple other pictures of her with, like, members of Jane's family. Like, one where the dad is there, one with the older siblings. Uh So, like, it's very clear the party is, like, kind of mostly family. And then Shelby and Alyssa. Vacation had begun. Or had it. But uh, the night doesn't just continue as a friendly family party. According to statements to the police, Jane's parents and her older sisters headed upstairs to bed around 1 o'clock. So, about an hour after Shelby and Alyssa arrived. And so, before going up to sleep, Jane's father told the girls not to drink and said you know like that part of the night was over you can have your slumber party you guys are free to hang out but like we're not drinking like the drinking portion of the night is over oh how responsible after having a bunch of teenagers drinking with you yeah um and 
he left them where they had been all night with a completely open bar and he went up to bed. I'm imagining in like a basement area, yeah. like a rec room kind of thing. Yeah. But, or maybe it's like a den or I don't know. But the three younger 17 year old girls are left alone. And, you know, Jane's father kind of had every right to be suspicious of the girls drinking because they'd been caught experimenting and drinking before at and they different had events. Just been drinking with the family? Yeah. Well, yes, but I, I guess he didn't want them to continue drinking and getting drunk. He was just like, oh, we let you have a little bit of fun, but now it's over. Just okay. watch a movie. Yeah. You okay. know, whatever. Right. But in previous weeks and months, the girls had kind of been experimenting more, going to more parties with their friends, coming home drunk. Uh, And according to Alyssa, you know, it was normal teenage stuff. They weren't party wild animals, but just doing what all their friends were doing. And that's what kids their age did. They were just curious about alcohol, curious how much they could drink, curious what different types of alcohol did to them. Would they pass out? Would they remember what blacking out was like? And I was like, that's not normal teenage stuff. Like, I didn't have that phase. No. (laughs) I'm not saying I didn't drink as a teenager. I didn't drink that much. But, like, I also wasn't like, hmm, what happens if I drink all this alcohol? How much does it take to get me to pass out? Never. Not Not even in adult life or teenage life did I think. Let me experiment with that. No. Well, one exact quote from Alyssa is, you just drink until you're out, and then you sleep it off. No. No. (laughs) That's wrong. (laughs) So, Shelby, who I mentioned before, uh, her mom was kind of strict. She was a former corrections officer, And had served her whole career in police. So she kept Shelby on a pretty tight leash. And just the month before, Shelby had been caught attending a beer pong party and had been grounded for a full month. So this was like the first night that Shelby was really allowed out. And it was to go to a slumber party at her best friend's house. They didn't know about this. Right. Event at, at the other I house. I would imagine not. So her mom said, you know, we knew Alyssa. We knew her parents. And we had no problem with her going and having a slumber party at her best friend's house. Right. You know, no big deal. And I just want to briefly mention the area that all this is taking place in is a, a town called Redding, California. It's described as a safe place to raise kids. And... It's known for its lakes, caverns, hills, and fields with grazing horses. Lovely. It's a place with a small town vibe where a teenage girl won't get away with much, especially if everyone knows her mom is a former cop and her dad is the labor rep for most of the public employees who live there. Hmm. But we're going to go back to around 1 a.m. on the evening of December 19th, 2008. Mm-hmm. So the older Wilsons go upstairs to bed, and that's when the drinking was supposed to end. But that's when the girls just got started. <laughs> of course. So Shelby's drink of choice was vodka, and she'd set a goal that night. Would you like to take a guess what her goal was to drink? A whole bottle? It's a good guess. It was 15 shots of vodka. 15 shots. Okay. That's what she told her friends she was going to drink that night. So she decided to, like, make it, like, a competition. And she was, like, texting a bunch of people, like, after every shot, like, number five, number six, number seven. I feel drunk after, like, two shots. Yeah. Um, her friends tell police, I honestly don't know why she got that number in her head. Maybe she saw someone do it at a party. She was competitive. Shelby was a natural athlete. She played volleyball and was on the cross-country track team. Uh, And Alyssa said that her and Jane told her that it was a bad idea. Some of her friends she was texting told her it was a bad idea. 
But that was Shelby's goal, and she was determined to make her goal. And that's what she does. So they happen to know the first shot happens at 1.08 a.m. as per text message time stamps. And when that first bottle of vodka ran dry, they found more at their, in Jane's parents' bar. And sh- there's pictures of that evening. Shelby posing for photos with the second bottle. Um, and all, she also continued to like track her her shot intake via text messages to How friends. How could she even text message? Yeah. So only 30 minutes later... So we're talking around 1.38. Uh, Shelby had already consumed 10 shots. In 30 minutes? Yes. Now, Shelby was 5'6 and 107 pounds. And she was just taking shots so rapidly. Like, her body wasn't even processing them and she was just drinking them. And, like, I can't imagine. I... I weigh much more than Shelby weighed, and I also can't imagine taking that many shots in one whole night, let alone in, in one 30-minute period. Oh, my God. But I guess you would have to take them that quickly, or you would be too sick yeah. to continue. You have to almost do it rapid before, fire. Like, yeah, before your body processes what you've done right almost like when you eat really fast and then all of a sudden you're super fucking full and you're like yeah but you didn't realize it so i think like the chugging or the binge drinking of the shots at that pace her body didn't need to have any time to react and so her text did get sloppier and sloppier and when she sent her like goal or final text of the evening announcing that she had matched it guess what time it was uh, 145. <laughs> Close. 158. Oof. So in less than one hour, Shelby uh, had consumed 15 shots no. of vodka. And I don't really know her pore size, if they were, like, actually, like, traditional shots. But if she did, like, the one and a half ounces, it's 22 mm-hmm. ounces of vodka consumed in less than an hour. Which is a lot of alcohol. Yeah. So, it's a no surprise that quickly thereafter, Shelby begins to feel sick. So, Jane takes her to the nearest bathroom, and she vomits. Uh, shortly after, Shelby kind of passes out, and Jane and Alyssa don't really know what to do. They're both drunk, Jane and Alyssa, because they had been drinking, just not to that extent. To that extent. Yeah. So, like, what do you do when your friend is kind of passed out and sick, you know, like, she's in the bath. They, they put her in the bathroom. They kind of prop her up next to the toilet. You know, they're checking on her every few minutes. But, like, they didn't know what else to do they're with her. Kids. Yeah. So, at around 2.30, Jane is kind of getting concerned. Because Shelby is, like really passed out and like not like really out of it so jane takes shelby's phone and starts to text a boy they all knew um who's pretty good friends with them and she texts him uh and this is his name is redacted as well Mm -hmm. but she texts she won't sober up at all I'm freaking out and have no idea what to do. And there are, like, spelling errors in there and, like, what shorthand, like, text speech because she was drunk. Then another text said, Shelb is out. I fucking need help. Another text said, Shelb is just half snoring, shaking. I need you so dab right now, which they they believe was bad. Yeah. Um, and so eventually this boy responds and he says, well, I'll come over and check it out, but it's so late. I've got to tell my parents that I'm leaving Mm -hmm. and Jane kind of freaks out. She doesn't want any adults involved and to know how bad her friend is. So she's like, no, no, no. Just like leave your parents a note. So if they wake up, they know where you are. He's like, no, no, I'm going to wake my parents up and tell them. Mm -hmm. And Jane's like, just forget about it. Don't come over. 
like, I don't want adults involved. Like, if you tell your parents, they're going to tell my parents. Wow, and so he's actually responsible. Yeah, I know. And so he decides he's just not going to come. Jane drops it. Uh, and he sends one more text that says, feel better, Shelby, smiley face. Oh, I wish he'd still told his parents. I know. So Jane and Alyssa eventually go to sleep and leave Shelby propped up on the toilet in the bathroom. And Jane didn't sleep a lot that night because she was really freaked out. And around 8 o'clock, her father wakes up and is getting ready to go to work. And it seems, based on the articles I read, that he owned a like a veterinary practice that was on their property. Okay. So maybe it was like some kind of big animal vet thing. Yeah. Because he, it was noted he was on the property at work, but like not in the home. I don't know. It's somewhat confusing. But he runs into Jane in the morning and he said, how was the evening with her friends? And Jane's still trying to protect everyone and not get everyone in trouble you know, says, oh, you know, it was good. Shelby's not really feeling so well, but it's everything is fine. And then an hour later, uh, around 9 o'clock, Jane's older sisters wake up, and Alyssa wakes up, and they come downstairs. And it's at that point Alyssa, who is now sober, goes in to check on Shelby and immediately knows something is severely wrong oh, with her. No. So Shelby is still passed out over the toilet seat. But now her face is bloody. Um, and her lip is busted open. And they believe it's from like attempting to vomit or heave. And like hitting her head on the toilet. Yeah. Um, and she's also unresponsive. Oh god. So Alyssa... Doesn't care who knows. Alyssa wants to help Shelby. So she immediately, like, gets uh, Jane's older sisters. They come and assess the situation. They call their dad. He comes back to the house. They call 911. And according to the 911 operator, like, recording, Jane's dad tells the operator... Uh, there's a child that's here and I don't think she's breathing. And when they asked him if he was sure that she wasn't breathing, he responded, I can't, I'm not sure that she's alive right now. And like, he was a vet. So like, he's a doctor. Yeah. Of, you know, some stage. So. Of animals. Humans are animals. Right, right, right. So 911 dispatchers obviously call an ambulance and everything to come to the house and they instruct him to start performing CPR until medical help arrives and he does just that. So when EMTs arrive they do find a weak pulse. Uh, Shelby is still alive barely um, and they attempt to revive her but ultimately are unable to revive her. Uh, Shelby Allen is pronounced dead at 9.40 a.m. on December 20th. Uh, her blood alcohol content or level was 0.33, which was four times the legal driving limit for adults in California. Oh, man. And this was hours later. This yeah. is eight hours later. Um, oh, how terrible. Yeah. So, obviously, this is a tragedy um, and overwhelmed by the grief Shelby's parents, the Allens, struggled to make sense of what had happened. In an interview, Shelby's dad is quoted as saying, We second-guessed everything we did that day. If only we had said she couldn't spend the night at Alyssa's house. If only we had banned sleepovers altogether. If only her mom had taken her shopping in Sacramento that day. If only we had checked up on her, as we always had in the past. If only we'd known more about alcohol poisoning and binge drinking so we could have educated her. All of these things go through our minds to this day. But they still wanted answers. Like, how did she drink so much? 
when there were adults in the house. Right. How did it get that bad? Um, but when they turned to the Wilson family, none of Jane's family members would talk to the Allens or to police. Um, and according to many sources that were interviewed after Shelby's death, the Wilson home was known as what teenagers called a safe house or a home where teenagers knew that they would be allowed to drink underage and then sleep it off to prevent them from drunk driving. Everyone kind of knew this about the Wilson house, um, but that just didn't sit right with Shelby's parents. And then they decided to go to the police. Like they wanted some repercussions for their daughter's death. Of course. Yeah, rightfully so. Yeah. So the police were obviously investigating Shelby's death, as police have to do when anyone dies. Right. But it was more a matter of just procedure. They weren't really looking to, like, hold anyone accountable for it because she chose to drink. She basically had alcohol poisoning of her own free will. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to the Shasta County DA, whose name is Gerald Benito, it became clear to me that negligence had occurred. Uh, when he first saw the photos of Shelby's body, he actually thought she might have been strangled because she had been propped against the toilet that it had, like, left marks on her neck. Holy shit. Because... She just like didn't move. She was that blackout drunk and her body for so was long. Slumping yeah. against it so hard. Um, and there was blood all over her face from when she did kind of her body tried to like get rid of and purge, and then she would hit the sides of the the toilet seat and stuff. Um, but by looking through her cell phone and the text she sent, as well as the text Jane sent. On her phone, it was very clear that Shelby had been in trouble for many hours prior to 9 a.m. when someone finally did something. Yes. And no one did anything to help her, which is where the negligence comes in. Right. Uh, But the Allens were also shocked to find out that in the state of California, while providing alcohol to a minor who was not one's own child was illegal, there is immunity... In host situations where you can't be held accountable for what happens in your home under Civil Code Section 1714, which went into law in 1978. So it's like a social host immunity. If you're hosting a party and something happens at that party, you can't be held accountable for it. Which, in this case, is... What they were saying was happening. Even, and the immunity protects underage drinking as well. Mm -hmm. So at the time of Shelby's death, um, there was like no repercussions to be had for the Wilson family. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess in some ways that law makes sense because like someone murders someone at your party. I mean, you're not responsible, right? But just feels a little different. I know. Uh, And just, like, some facts about underage drinking. Uh, It says that more than 500 underage drinkers are rushed to ERs in any given typical day, and 5,000 people under 21 die annually of alcohol-related injuries. And that number is actually estimated to be low due to underreporting, like parents that don't want yeah. Their their minors numbers reported and things. But who is accountable in this situation? A young girl died. And who should be held accountable? Is she accountable? Are her friends accountable? Are the parents accountable? Um, according to this law, the social host law that I mentioned, uh, Mr. Wilson could not be held accountable. Because he actually had done things. He verbally told the girls not to drink before going up to bed. Um, When he was made aware of the situation, which is 
well after 9 a.m. He did the right thing and called 911. And he performed CPR on her. Yeah. Uh, He took precautions or he tried to save her. And thus he could not be held liable in Shelby's death under this civil code. But this didn't stop Debbie Allen or Jane's or Shelby's dad from needing closure. So in what many people in their town deem a very unpopular move, um, the Allens actually filed charges against Jane, the daughter. I kind of thought that was what was going to happen. It was very clear through the text messages that she had sent that she knew Shelby was in trouble and she refused to seek proper help when, if she had done something at 2 a.m., Shelby would have been alive. But she chose not to. Um, Prosecutors said at 17, you know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And they used Alyssa as the example when Alyssa got up at 9 o'clock and she knew something was wrong. She got help mm-hmm. versus Jane, who at 2 o'clock knew something was wrong and just chose to let her sleep it off in the bathroom. Yeah. Um, so that was really what their case was, is that she chose to not seek help. Uh don't do that ever. I if know. any youngins are listening to this podcast. Uh, the defense argued that Jane was in shock. She hadn't been in a situation like that. She was too young to really know what to do. Um, and her, her attorney is quoted as saying, This case, which is about revenge and money, never should have been litigated. What happened was a horrible tragedy. I hate this case. But the Allens should have opened their arms to my client, who suffered tremendously over the death of her friend, instead of lashing out vindictively. Um, Which many people in the town agreed with, that Mm -hmm. the 17-year-old shouldn't be charged. And in the end, Jane was acquitted, and no one from the Wilson church, the family, was ever held responsible for Shelby's death. Yeah. Um, So Debbie Allen went on to create a foundation called Shelby's Rules. And they are... They tour, like, the West Coast providing teenagers hard facts about the complications and repercussions of binge drinking. And uh, so if you go to the website, Shelby's Rules, I don't actually know that she's still touring. The website is... Still up and running, and all of the information is there, but um, it seems a little outdated. I mean, COVID might have played a fact. Yeah. Know, there's a lot of things, I guess. That but you can read all about Shelby's story, as well as, like, the story from Alyssa's point of view, from other friends' point of views, um, and the the biggest rules are that, like, she, like, Tell everyone is if you're drinking alcohol and a friend passes out, call nine one one. Yeah. Um, immediately, but like kids are afraid of calling nine one one. They're afraid of getting in trouble. They're afraid of getting caught. Um, but don't be afraid because every second counts. So you can read all these stories on the website, and that is um, Shelby's Shelby's Rules Foundation dot com. So Shelby. Shelby's mom, uh, for many years, toured with Alyssa, who -hmm. was the other girl involved that night. Um, Alyssa says that she continues to have nightmares about that night. Um, And during the investigation, she admitted to underage drinking. She served 50 hours of community service. um, And she actually made the issue of alcohol poisoning and underage drinking her senior project. Um, that year, and she had a newfound zero-tolerance perspective on underage drinking, which she said did not make her very popular when she went to college. Um, but that's just what she did. Yeah. Uh, so a quote from Debbie Allen, Shelby's mom, says, Life gives you two choices when you suffer a tragedy. Give up or move on. I have a husband and another child to love and take care of. I must move on. 
for their sake, if not mine. But now I also have a mother's passion to educate teens about the dangers of alcohol poisoning amid this new culture of binge drinking, a danger many know nothing about and a danger my family learned about in the hardest way imaginable. It's not a matter of staying strong. It's a matter of doing what needs to be done, no matter how you are feeling, no matter how sad you are. I believe and believed almost right away this is what Shelby would have wanted me to do. And just to update the law a little bit because um, it's been quite a few years since Shelby has passed away. In August of 2010, a new bill did go into effect in the state of California that does hold adults civilly liable for damages if they knowingly furnish alcohol to underage drinkers in their homes. Um, And much of that is due to Debbie's perseverance in trying to get that law passed. And then there's a companion bill that was passed the next year that provides criminal protection or immunity for minors who call 911 to assist in an underage drinker um, so that they won't face, like, laws for underage drinking because they've called to get help for a friend. Right. Okay. So. I actually, I actually like that. Yeah, so she, I mean, a tragedy obviously happened, but there are some laws, and I'm sure there are probably more and more states signing on. Um, yeah. But. I, th- I think it's important because, yeah, kids are scared of getting in trouble, but you could save someone's life. So, yes, if there's, like, a law that says, like, if you're, you know, if you're calling law enforcement because someone's in trouble, you're not going to get in trouble for underage drinking, like, I I mean, I don't know how many kids know that that's a law, but... Right. Well, and it's state by state. Yeah. So. Right. I don't know. Educate your teenagers. Yes. (laughs) So, my sources, um, I used two news articles. Uh, One was titled, 15 Shots of Vodka Killed Our Daughter. And it was written by Andrea Todd, October 13th of 2015. And then another one, Teen Charged with Manslaughter. In Shelby Lynn Allen's death, and that was by Jim Schultz of the Reading Record Searchlight paper. And then I also got some information from the Shelby's Rules Foundation website. Wow. Super tragic, yeah. but definitely important for, for people to hear, especially young people. Agreed. Well, that was a deep episode. Yes. But now on to happier things. Like drinking. Yes. <laughs> so it is time for our barbed week. And this time we are going into Manhattan. We're not doing another Queens yes. bar or restaurant. So this is a place called Barrio Chino. Uh, it is in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It's a very small Mexican restaurant, um, but very delicious. Right. And their specialty is, like, their tequila bar. Yes. So, as you can imagine, their cocktails are heavily influenced by tequila. So, lots of margarita flavors. Definitely. Um, mezcal. So, they do, like, good palomas, margaritas, drinks of that nature. They just pair really well with, like, the spicy Mexican food. But they're so refreshing. Yes. So, we both got margaritas. For sure. Um... I can't remember. I remember us looking at all these flavors. I feel like I got elderflower. I want to say that that's what right. I got. Uh, here, if you want to take a look at their options to see if it rings any bell. Oh, I definitely got the watermelon. Yeah. <laughs> there's no doubt about it. Because there's not a coconut option. If there yeah. were a coconut margarita, that's what I would have gotten. But I definitely had the watermelon margarita. But they have some interesting flavors. Like they have jalapeno lime. The elderflower, uh, so definitely tamarind, which is yes, like tamarind, very like Hispanic Mexican flavor, hibiscus, right? So like not just your typical. I mean, they do have like a regular lime margarita and obviously watermelon uh, and grapefruit, but they do have some of these unique flavors as well. Uh, and then they have a whole list of mezcal drinks that we neither of us are really friends. With. Friends. <laughs> We're not friends with that mezcal. 
neither of us like mezcal. Yeah, we neither of us are fans of like the smokiness, but some people love it. Yeah, uh, and they have almost I think the same flavors actually that they have as a margarita. Uh, so definitely worth checking out, and their food is really good too. Their tacos were delicious. Uh, I actually have a picture of the food with my margarita, so we can post that so you can salivate over how delicious it looks. And add it to your to-visit list. Yes. Uh, I feel like you're more likely to be visiting Manhattan than Astoria, unless you know us. So, yeah. So definitely a good recommendation if you like Mexican food, if you like margaritas, if you like mezcal. 100% recommend checking it out. Yes. And you can salivate over our pictures if you follow us on social media. <laughs> uh, again, we are posting pictures from not only the bar, Barrio Chino, but also from both of our stories this week. So if you want to find out what those people look like and some of the info behind those stories, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at a tap on the wrist. And feel free to email us with story ideas. Uh, any bars that you really enjoy, and we will talk about them. Our email is tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. And a reminder that next week is our last pre, our last 2021 episode. Yes. Before we come back in 2022. I mean, I cannot believe we are at the end of 2021. I do not feel like it's December. I can't. I'm looking at a Christmas tree and I can't wrap my mind around the fact that we're in December. You can't wrap your mind around that. <laughs> oh, well, I guess that should wrap up this episode. <laughs> Until next week. Here's all the bells and whistles. Oh, no. <laughs> we're going now. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.